Um, how many of you guys did um, some word studies or some researches on angels this week? Did you guys go online and do any kind of research at all? I found several articles as I went online about who angels issues are and, and kind of where they're coming from. In one of these articles, um, I just want to read a little bit of it for you. Hold on here. I just undid my whole book. Um, I don't want to read the whole thing. I'm going to tell you about part of it, and then if you guys want it, we will send it out by um, um, email. I'll send it by email attachment. Okay, this one is called Let Us Reason Ministries. Um, and it says, religions started by angels. Um, I think one of the important things to understand is, is we're looking at a subject like angels in the word of God. And, um, you know, sometimes these kinds of things, because they are principalities that are in the invisible world to us, we tend to ignore them. And we tend to just say, ah, it's not important. It doesn't really, doesn't really matter to me. But the, the truth of the matter is it really does matter. Um, Celeste and I have had a lot of conversations this last couple of weeks or so. There's a, a friend that is caught up in a faith system that has a lot to do with angel worship and um, not living in a place of reality but a place of this mystical, you know, thinking that's kind of devoid. It's almost a Gnostic thinking. So uh, let me just read a little bit of this, bits and pieces, and kind of draw you into this thought process so that when we get into the, st the, 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 the details and the specifics about angels and who they are and so forth, that you will also see um, within this conversation some things that really do apply to us and that we need to, why we need to know these things. Okay, um, this is uh, what they have to say. When one looks at history, we find many major religions that have been started from angels. Now, these are the, the three major ones, and then there's multitudes of others, okay? Smaller, uh, uh, what I would call almost cultic kinds of religions. But these are the three major ones. Jehovah Witness, started by an angel. And, and their writings are based off that. I mean, that's where they get their inspiration for what they believe is true about their faith. Mormonism, and every, there's a lot of you who are familiar with that. Islam, which is a huge problem for us right now today with all that's going on in the world. So, and, and then they go on to say, and almost um, anything uh, new is no exception to this. The whole New Age movement receives their information from spirit guides through channeling and automatic writing. The psychics also receive their impressions by familiar spirits who would be identified as fallen angels. We identify them as fallen angels. Now, they do not, obviously. Okay, there are some Christian healing ministries also started by the angelic visitations. A man named William Branham, has anybody heard of that, William Branham? I had not heard of this, but it's a healing ministry. At the early age of three and seven, he had an angelic, uh, an, an angelic appearance to him. In a cave in 1946, this angel appeared and stayed with him, giving him the power to discern people's thoughts and illnesses. Little bit scary. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm already going to kind of like wanting to back up a little bit from the page. In his services, he would wait for the angel's presence before he would start the meetings. Branham was led away from orthodoxy, stating that Trinitarianism was the devil. 
that baptism should only be in Jesus' name and taught that Eve and sexual relations had sexual relations with the serpent. So these are some things that came out of this visitation that he received from this so supposed angel from God. He taught denominationalism is the mark of the beast and all denominations would be under the World Council of Churches by 1977. <laughs> He, know, he Well, you know, we can laugh at this now, but I'm telling you, a lot of people got sucked into this and believed it. Because why? What was the enticing power? He had a visitation from an angelic being. And that spiritual, mystical um, quality that he presented to the hearers of his, of his congregation, they were excited by that. Somehow it made him rise above other things doctrines that were being taught, which simply came out of the Word of God, which, you know, that's just secondary, right? He forgets that Jesus had a visitation from an angelic being in the wilderness. Oh, amen, Craig. That is exactly right. Okay. So later he proclaimed himself to be the angel of Revelation 3 and 10, which I think is hysterical. You guys remember the angel who has this rainbow and his feet stood between the two lands and, and he tells John to eat the book and so forth. Remember that? That's, he claimed that he was that angel. Okay. There, um, today there is still about 10,000 Branhamites, they call themselves following his teaching after his death. Now, there's a list here. I'm not going to go into it because I don't want to open up a bucket of worms and start any, you know, arguments in, the, in our time here together. But he lists, and you'll get to see it if I send this to you by email. I, I'm assuming I will do that later. Almost always you guys say, oh, I want that article. So I'm going to just say I'll send it. But he lists some, spe some people, and there are some names on here you are going to know that are caught up in this, that have received a lot of their doctrinal inspiration of how they teach and how they preach from this man's uh, message. So in other words, they, didn't, they don't consider themselves Branhamites. They consider themselves mainstream Christian. But they have received information from him, and they have laced it in with the doctrines of Christianity, and they're teaching it in, in various kinds of ministries out there, many of them which are these healing ministries, being slain in the spirit and so forth. Uh, so forth. Okay, angels have always been involved in bringing revelation to mankind. They have also been involved in bringing false information, this, somewhat like Craig just mentioned. It all depends on which spirit you have contact with. Now, here's some, an interesting t statistic. 42% of Americans believe they have been in contact with someone who has died. In other words, they believe that when you die... Your spirit can walk the earth and communicate with, with human beings. Ghosts, right? And, you know, look at how many TV programs that are out there on this subject. That, and that, you know, they've got haunted mansions. They've got, you know, whatever. And this is absolutely a false doctrinal teaching. And it's a total false understanding of the doctrine of what happens after you die, Right. That's exactly right. And, and that there is this place called Sheol in which you are bound until, you know, or for those of us who in the New Testament die in faith, we are with the Lord, you know, and, 
what about the idea too that people think that when you die then you look down from heaven and you watch over your family members that your mother is watching over you that your that your child is there or whatever I mean and it's total false because we are limited finite human beings we are present in the present place that we're in presence at <laughs> we can't be all we're not like God we're not all seeing all knowing and why would you even want to? Exactly right. Okay, so 42% of Americans believe that they have been in contact with someone who has died, and almost 15% endorse the work of medium spirits, or spirits of mediums. All these and other religions have been uh, had communion with angels for their extra-biblical books, or have been given new revelation for a new interpretation on the Bible. Now, this week we've looked at uh, s- several verses. Is there anything that comes to mind to you where, where, when someone were to say to you, well, an angel appeared to him and gave him this message? Yes, even if a message should come to you, even by an angel, do what? Consider that person and their message what? Accursed. Do not listen to those messages. Exactly. Okay, so can the same angel say two different things on the same subject? Because often these um, visitations, they borrow the names like Gabriel, for instance, and then they say, well, I had a visit from Gabriel, and Gabriel gave me this new message for you now. And so this is what they do. And so the question now in this article is, can the same angel come at different times times in history and come with a different message as in a different message meaning it contradicts something that was already clearly stated not that's exactly right a fallen angel yes but not not the angel of God okay and in this case the Brenamites began their entire religion system based off of visitations from an angel Joseph Smith with the Mormons same thing and almost everything of their doctrine contradicts Things that are clearly established in the word of God, right? Okay, can the, the same angel say two th- different things on the same subject, subject and they both be true? Obviously not. Yet this is exactly what Islam claims, for instance, in its inspired word, the Quran. They believe in the Quran that it was verbally dictated by the angel Gabriel. Did you know that? They, they actually think it's Gabriel. Uh, based on eternal tablets that are in heaven. Naturally, if there is a conflict, it must be in the Bible and not their own book. However, uh, however, there's something else operating here that proves it is not the uh, angel Gabriel as they claim. In their own shuras, and shuras mean chapters, in the shuras of the Quran, it states that God's word cannot change. So if an angel several hundreds of years later comes with a different story, which one are we supposed to believe? And then he goes on and gives all kinds of examples, and he, and he talks about where the conflicts are, and, he, and it's detailed. Here's another one. Ellen G. White of the Seventh-day Adventist uh, movement was in touch with a accompanying angel who revealed to her the hidden truths of the Bible, uh, in 1950, her accompanying angel, now this is kind of scary, the idea of an accompanying angel, someone that accompanies you, is your, like a medium spirit, a, a channeling spirit, is what she had. And her accompanying angel said the time is almost finished, that the last seven plagues were going to be poured out before the rapture. Now that was given to her back in um, 1849. <laughs> okay. Numerous other so-called Christian churches uh, some significant, some 
not have uh, revelations given by these spirits, such as Moses Berg and the children of God. Now, that's a church I have heard about. I don't know a lot about it, but it's, it's a name that's familiar to me. And he received some of their teaching from contact of spirit guides and angels. They told him of reincarnation and contradicted many teachings of the scripture, even though they used the Bible. Then he goes into the next part is on the Mormons and talk about the issues that Mormonisms have. They teach that all souls preexisted as angels. This is interesting. We, our souls preexisted as angels. Now, Yeah, but the problem with this is when you do your doctrines on this, we know that there is a clearly divided line between God's creating of angels and us. They are, they are on two totally different uh, accounts, and the angels observed our being created, the earth being created, and therefore they are a distinctive class or a distinctive bearman, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Uh, it is this that have an opportunity to progress to become gods over their own planets, okay? And so that, and most of us are a little bit familiar with the problems in Mormonism. Some of you may have even come out of Mormonism to become Christian. Um, but, and I, you know, and I got to say, I've known, a, I know a lot. My neighbors are Mormon, nice peoples, but this is delusional, right? And it is a scary thought that they actually believe that there was an angel that came in with a second. And this is why they call even their Book of Mormon the second gospel. And they, and they promote it on the TV ads as, as if, well, you have your Bible. Let me send you this. This is another gospel of Jesus Christ. As if there's an additional and a new thing that God has given. Okay, so this article goes on about that. Then he talks about Jehovah Witness and, and covers that and the, what's said in the Watchtower, which is their, their uh, holy writings. Galatians 1, 8 warns that if we or an angel preaches any other gospel to you, let them be accursed. Not only do they have another gospel which removes them from covenant with God, but is a, it is an angel that has delivered it. For the Mormons and JW, it is the angel Jesus that they have received their instruction from and are speaking about. This is not the Jesus of the Bible. Neither is it the same message. So this article gives you a lot more details, and you can go in. You can read actually some specific people that you would be familiar with. And I thought that was an interesting beginning. I don't know how many of you did go online and do any research. I found lots. I've got four, five, six different articles here from going online uh, about angelology, um, biblical worship. I did one where I Googled and looked to see what did the Jews, uh, what was their practice concerning uh, angel worship at the time of this writing, because I was curious to say how much of an influence was it um, at that time. It, it's just really in interesting that this has been a problem from time immemorial, basically. Yeah. They had some, yes. Although, what's very interesting about the part on Judaism that I learned was, you know, their religion, because it's our religion, it's, it's the Old Testament, it strictly forbids angel worship. Um, and so they know that. But when you get off into things like Kabbalah, 
which is a mixture of Judaism and New Age practice, where it's a blended religion, basically. It's not pure, it's not Judaism in its purity. It's Judaism mixed with, with, with New Age spiritism. They get this thing called Kabbalah, if you've ever heard of it. Have you ever seen the hand? The pretty hand, and it's got a decoration on it. Do not have one of those in your home. <laughs> that, that is Kabbalah worship, and it's steeped in spiritualism and uh, angel worship, and, and, and often there's the all-seeing eye that's on there. And when we were living in Turkey, those were so popular to have the all-seeing eye who was to watch over you, and it's all mystical, and it's all superstition. It's not based in the Word of God. So... I know it. Me too. I'm with you on that. <laughs> he wants the, he, yeah. I would have liked to. Have, my husband says that angels argue every time I get in the car. Who has to take point? <laughs> that's his big joke. He thinks that's his. Yeah, no, my guardian angels. No. <laughs> well, yes, they are. But anyway, yes. Yes, Marion. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> I'd be getting a doctor that, well, maybe not. You know, really interesting. How many of you guys did the Ezekiel with me? A lot of you? Yeah. What do you, one of the things that we learned in, in that particular book, too, was another kind of a, a different perspective about angels. The four living beings, there's the cherubim, there's, you know, there's these different classifications of angels, and some of them were described. Do you remember one of the descriptions? Can somebody kind of tell me what they remember? Yeah, four faces and eyes all over their body and under their wings, and I mean, like, okay, so now this is an angel, right? Yeah. That's enough to scare you. It's not the sweet little cherub that we see on our, our Valentine's Day cards, is it? So it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty intimidating when you consider these are a created being. They have qualities and characteristics that are somewhat similar in, in, in that they have a face and then they have arms, they have feet, that kind of a quality. But yet they're very distinctive. So I can't wait. We're going to get into this and, and get this all laid out clearly here. All right, before we go, yeah, yes. Okay. And a newer phenomenon lately, like I don't know how far back it goes, but there's starting to be a tie-in between aliens, UFOs. Yes, oh, it's been around forever. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, yeah, there's just so much. This. And so to me, I would say that this is one of those lessons. It's a topical study that we've done this week. If you didn't catch on to that, we, did a, we stopped in the middle of what we were doing. Now we're doing a topical study so we understand the doctrine. Now, this is the way the inductive process works. What you want to do is if a subject matter comes up that you're not real familiar with, you want to go in and you want to say, what do, I, what do I need to know doctrinally is true about angels themselves so that then as I move forward, I'm interpreting correctly the information that I'm seeing. So that's what we have done this week. And you can discern between good and That's exactly. You can discern between truth and the lie and, and make proper interpretation so that you don't take a verse and say, oh, it must mean this. Right? And then you end up with a wrong understanding. All right. Well, Miss Lois would like to make an announcement. Yeah, two quick announcements. One, I'm going to circulate the sign-up sheet for snacks. We have five more slots that need to be filled if you wish to do it. Some of y'all may need to do it twice because this is a really long study. 
It really did go, I mean, and I couldn't believe how fast you guys did that last time. It was amazing. Yeah. I think I saw some hands over here today. No? All right. Awesome, awesome, all right. Well, one thing that I was able to do this week at the end of doing all my other homework was clean up my observation worksheet one more time. I, I started all over from fresh. It looks so pretty now. I can, And you know what I was able to do is eliminate a lot of the markings and a lot of the notes that are now basically in my mind put to bed and they're explained by some of the more important things that we looked at. So I want to go back real quickly and what one of the things that Kay had us do on day one's homework was to go back through and relook again at these um, these Old Testament quotes that are found in chapter one and she said from that now that you've done all the work that you've done you should be able to really focus in and just draw into one major point that you see is being said by that quote about who Jesus is, okay? So in your chart that you did, it should have been, um, let's see here, let me go into my day five, or homework five, I'll have to go back to my homework now after I do this, messing myself up. Page 27, no, that's not it. 28, thank you. It's day one's homework though, page 28. 28 and 29, that's correct, 28 and 29. And what you want to do is look at the Old Testament references, show us, what does it show us about Jesus? So let's do that first so that we can just have a real quick review of what we covered last week. So Psalms 2-7, what does it teach us specifically about who Jesus is? Give me a very concise title about who it, what it tells us about who Jesus is. He, he is the son. Now, is he just the son, or is, he, is there a qualifier to that also? The begotten son. Okay, he is the begotten son. Okay, my, my marker is still really hard. It'll get softer, I suppose, as we move along. Then we also looked at 2 Samuel 7.14. Correct? And in this one now, he is called what? The Son. This one is the Son. The Son of God. And I can tell you that term, the Son of God, is one of the most prevalent ones used throughout all Scripture. And it can, what's interesting is the begotten Son can be, you know, integrated into the, the, the subject of being the Son of God as well. But 
in this particular references that were given to us in chapter 1, it was actually broken down. He is the begotten son, which is distinct, but he's also the, he is also the son of God. Okay, then in Psalm uh, 97, what did we see? Yeah, why is he worthy of worship? What is it about him that makes him worthy? He is God. Okay, and what? Okay, what was it that in read that Psalm ninety-seven seven real quick for me? Because we want to clarify really carefully what we see in this. Okay. Okay, so what would be the contrast there? Don't worship idols, but worship what? God. What God? The true God, right? Because he's not an image. He is true God. So that is the, the uh, oops, so that is the point that he, they're saying here. He is the true God, the one who can be worshipped or is to be worshipped. Okay. Then we have Psalm 45. Yes, and, and the description of that kingship and of his throne is it's that the qualifier for it is that it's what kind of a king or what kind of a ruler? It, yes, oh, oh, throne, your throne, oh God, is forever and ever, and it's what kind of a scepter? uprightness of righteousness basically right is the scepter of your kingdom so it could be that he's a righteous king or a righteous eternal king or a righteous eternal ruler that is who Jesus is the righteous eternal ruler or king right all right, then the next one, I'm running low here. I should have made my boxes smaller. Psalms 102. He is described there as doing what? Yeah, that's exact. Say it again, Martha. The creator. Okay, then in Psalm 102, 26 and 27, they're going to perish, but he's going to do what? Remain forever. So he's what kind of a God? Eternal. That's right. He's the eternal God. Yeah, yes, and really the, that subject then is, is more specifically handled in the next reference, in Psalms 101. So tell me what you see in Psalm 101. You know what? That's really good that you came to that particular. I came to that, dis, that understanding after I got the other one in there. So, yes, he is, he's the victorious Savior that's re represented to us in that particular verse there. But he's also what? This is the one that they said to go, I think it was to Joshua 10, 24, and it showed a scenario, a picturing of um, Israel, who were God's people, having captured an enemy, and he said to them when they captured the enemy, what were they to do? Put their foot upon their neck, 
right? Now, what is that a symbolic picture then of? Conquering. conquering. He's a conquering king, and he is a sovereign king. Um, you might even go to the point of saying he, then he is, therefore, the king of kings, right? Because uh, these other nations now are under his foot. What did God, what had God just said to him in the close of Hebrews chapter 1 about what Jesus was supposed to do until God did something. Sit at my right hand until I do what? Make your enemies a footstool. Are you catching the, the picture there in that? So here he is then in Psalm 110. He is the king of kings and victorious savior. I loved it. Was that not a great little, uh, I guess, just a, a concise list of how chapter 1 presents Jesus as being better than the angels because he is the begotten son, the son of God, the true God, the righteous eternal king, the creator, the eternal God, the king of kings, and victorious savior. I love that. Now, one thing that... Um, I did not get a chance to develop fully last week, but we had it on our list to start with. I just didn't take it to the full end. Oh, Yoshiko, yeah. This. The creator? Oh, did I miss one? Oh, 45. Oh, it did. I sure did. Aha, uh -huh. okay, and so what is Psalm 45.7? That's right, and what kind of a king is he? What has happened to him? Anointed. Now, that is really significant in the Hebrew system, is it not? Could anyone be king over Israel if they had not been anointed? How many of you did our Matthew study with us and where we see Jesus at, the, at his baptism and the Holy Spirit falls upon him? And God, then the, the heavens open and he looks down, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. This falling of the dove upon him is that symbolic picture then of the anointing, that he had been anointed as the king. The book of Matthew is all about Jesus is their king. That was the, that's the major subject flow there. And that falling of the Holy Spirit upon him was his anointing to signify that Jesus, in fact, what is the anointed king of Israel. So thank you for pointing that out, Yoshiko. I missed that one. So 45.6 and then 45.7 would be he's the anointed king. So I'll slip it in there. <laughs> Thanks for catching that. I missed it. Okay. All right. Now, let me tell you one thing that I spotted and, and um, I wanted to hit on it last week and I missed it because I, we got sidetracked like a million other things going on. Okay, number one, I want to go back and look at that word theos in verse one. One, one, God is called the theos, correct? How many of you looked up that particular word when you did your work last week? Okay. okay, it can be, right. In this text, we know it's correct to be capitalized because it's speaking of the one true God, Yahweh. So what's really cool about this is God, Theos, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, and in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. So in this context, this 
theos word is speaking of Yahweh, correct? Now, what's really interesting is, how many of you looked up the word God then throughout the whole text? Craig, did you happen to go on with that word theos after that verse 1-1? Did you find it anywhere else in chapter 1? You don't remember? Okay, well, I want you guys to flip with me to verse 8 and 9. The word God comes up again, and again, it's the word theos, correct? Now, if we're trying to equate Jesus as being God in this text, and we are, and we have done so quite well, verse 3 alone, that he is the image, right? Uh, he, is the exact, he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his own power. This shows him as being God, correct? And so that was really well established. But if you keep moving in this, when he hits first faith, he says, but of the Son, God says, your throne, O God, is forever. So God the Father, Yahweh, says of the Son, he is called God. And guess what? Same word. Theos. Isn't that cool? 26 uh, or 2316, it's the same word. And then he go and go all the way on down in verse 9. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. Again, 2316. 2316. So what's really cool about this is he that that name of God, uh, Theos, gets start is established in verse 1 as being God the true God. God the Father, and then Jesus is called the same thing, God. And in the same context, it means, it, it basically, he's equating himself with being him, God. I thought that was a good point just to bring out because I hadn't uh, had a chance to finish it last week. Oh, that's so cool. Anytime you see that, it's a reference to you that on the continuum, he started and ended, and you're just somewhere in the. I love that. Well, what I, and, and I just thought, to me, this really anchored it in, in plain English. I mean, if you, if you only had the English to look at, you didn't have word studies to do, to do, for instance, you could go to verse 8, and you see that God himself, God the Father, is speaking to Jesus, his son, and he's saying, his name is God. He's calling him God. And, and then when you go then to the original language and you see it's the same word theos as which he is opened with. He what's you know, we've talked about this so many times that when you see the names of God uh, within the flow of your text, whatever you're studying at the time, whatever, whatever you're reading, that name is a, an identifying marker of what his message is about generally. Okay, so if he calls himself the all-seeing God, that's how he's portrayed. And we've seen that this week when we went in and looked at, for instance, the story of Hagar. And, and she called him God who sees. And there is a word for that that's in the names of God when you study them that he gets that title. That name, the name of God is the God who sees. There's another God that shall provide. There's a one, another one, the God who heals, the God who is sovereign, the God who is all-knowing. And each of these titles of God, as you see them within the context of whatever you're studying, give an enhancement of strength to that one quality that he's trying to portray in the storyline. So in this one, he starts, I am God Theos. 
And then he develops that further by telling us relationally who he is with the son. And in the end of it, what we see there in verse 8 is God the Father is God and God the Son is God. And I loved that. I thought that was a, a really awesome connection once I saw that. It was the same 2316 word. I thought that was just an additional little highlight. Okay. All right. So that gives us a really good review of where we're com- coming from here as far as the foundation of this book, which is what? What is the title that you have for chapter one? Jesus is better than the angels. Why is he better? Because he's God right? Because he's God. And so therefore, then, um, when we get into the next uh, bit of our homework, where we did this week, which is about the subject of angels, now what we need to know is, okay, now that we know who Jesus is, we need to know a little bit about angels. So that we do, as far as our doctrinal understanding, put them in their correct place, their correct position, and anytime we come across them in scripture, and are they not everywhere in scripture? Yeah, And so when we come across them in Scripture, we need to have a a really good doctrinal understanding of who they are. Now, what we did this week was what I call a mini-study. You know, if you wanted to do a really thorough study on angels, you could probably spend a good six, eight, maybe even ten weeks of research and building information. And a lot of it would be minute details about storylines that would take time to just tear apart and bring down to, you know, to draw your points out of. But the time-consuming part of it is they're all buried in stories. Because when it comes to angels, are they generally the highlight of the storyline? If you did not notice that at all in this week's homework, I hope that you will go back and kind of look again. Angels are never the central focus of the storyline. They are, they are brought in alongside of the storyline as an agent of God for whatever the purpose is of that moment. But angels are mentioned over and over and over in Scripture. So let's get started here. Let's start with just two or three points. Um, in Hebrews, let's start with Hebrews chapter 1 itself. Tell me what we know about their creation. Just from Hebrews. We want to look at creation. What does it tell us in Hebrews 1.7 about that, about them? Okay, so they were made, right? They were made by God. That's in Hebrews 1.7. Another point in uh, Hebrews 6, actually, 6 and 9 are a couple things, where they just give us a little bit of description. So we're going to talk about they they were created, but then we're going to move into their description. So I'm going to make another title here, their description. We're going to try to fill in more information on that. And then we want to hit their purpose. I'm going to have to come down here probably. Do I have enough room? I might run out of room because there was so much that we looked at. 
I know, and I've got, we've got word studies, and we've got, and a lot of other things, but yes, so their purpose, we'll hit, we'll hit there, we'll do description here, and then their purpose, and then see if we can get room for a word study at the end. Okay, so tell me what we see about their description just in Hebrews chapter 1. How are they described to us? Look in verse uh, 6 to start with. They do. They worship God. And actually, they worship not only uh, God, they worship God and who else? Uh Uh-huh. God tells them that they are to worship the Son. They worship God and his Son. Even before that, it really says they're lesser than the Okay, very good. So another description of them is that they are, in in the terminology there, they use the word companions, correct? Is that what you're talking about in verse... Oh. Okay, well, in, okay, yes. And then that's qualified, or it's, it's better explained when you drop to verse 19, right? He says, you have, he, he's continuing to explain that Jesus is the righteous king, that he's hated lawlessness, therefore God, your God, has anointed you, right, with the oil of gladness, what, positionally where? Above your companions. Now, I don't know if you, if you are able to do this, but if you were to follow the flow of thought, we see in verse 10 an interruption. Verses 10 all the way to 13 elaborates upon who? Who's the major subject in those verses, 10 to 13? Jesus himself. Then it goes in verse 14, and it comes back to, are they? They who? What does that link back up to? Uh, Okay, it can can go back to 13, but to which of the angels did he he ever sit at my right hand? And those angels in 13 link back to what? What verse? Actually, verse 9. Your companions. He's speaking about them as being the companions. So somebody had asked me about this last week. Uh, you know, who are these? Oh, maybe it was in the evening group. Asked who are these companions, and they were trying to make the link. Well, if you're following this, the, the flow of thought in here, it's speaking about angels comparing them to Jesus, correct? That Jesus is better than the angels. So the subject of angels gets introduced early in here, all the way back in verse um, Four, it looks like. So having become better than the angels, in, in six it says, let all the angels of God worship him. They are ministers in a flame of fire, and you, Jesus, are above your companions. So the companions there are who? The angels. So you might, just so that you don't forget this, you might want to make the same symbol on the word companions as you did for the word angels. Uh, and then I like to sometimes just draw lines even. Sometimes I will draw a line from my word companions all the way down to they in verse 14. They who? Your companions, right? They are, min- are they not all ministering service? So in this statement here, uh, their description is they, they are subject to or beneath the authority, right, of Jesus, correct? In this, they are his companions and he is above them. It's showing a position of authority or power over them, of greatness over them. Okay? So they are subject to the Father and the Son. Oops. 
to the sun, and that's in one, um, I'll just put six and nine kind of together, right? <clears throat> because they're the, they're the ministers of flame. The firstborn is above them. Let all the angels worship him. So we can put that on the description. They worship. That might be under their purpose. What do you think? You want to put it under purpose or... They worship Jesus, and that's in 1-6, okay? All right, so that gives, added, oh, there's one more point in 14. How are they described in 14? And so I'm going to put this as their purpose because they, it says they, they are, and, and actually they put it in reverse, are they not? So they are all ministering spirits. Now, did anybody do a word study on ministering spirits? Let's put that over here. Because I do think it's it, word studies. Kay asked us to do a word study on angels in general, which we're going to cover in a minute. But before we even get there, in your homework somewhere along the line, you probably hit this word of ministering spirits, and we, I hope we're curious enough to look it up. Uh, the idea of ministering is pr pretty much obvious to us. What do you think ministering means? Service. Service, right? It's to serve, basically, right? So the ministering ser servant, let's put this on here. Ministering would be servant. Okay, so they're ministering, and then it says spirits. Now, this one is very interesting. What do you think the word spirits is? Did anybody look it up? There you go. Okay, pneuma, and who, who can that actually identify in Scripture for us besides... The angel. It can be the Holy Spirit, exactly. So if, if in fact, they were talking about the, the pneuma, it's a, basically it's a spirit essence, correct? When you speak of the Holy Spirit, then what, what does this kind of, in your mind, help you understand about ministering spirits? Does it tell you anything about them uh, in relationship to who they are and how they would be described in your mind? They're unseen, just like the Holy Spirit, the scripture talks about the Holy Spirit comes and goes, you know not where it, it, it goes. It's, sometimes it's a wind, sometimes it's just this gentle spirit that speaks to your heart. The, spirit, the idea of being a spirit is that which is non-matter, right? So spirits, in this case, it's number, I'm just going to put it up here for you. It's 4151, and it's P-N-E-U-M-A, pneuma. And it means spirit, <laughs> which I think is funny. Same word. Wind. It can mean wind. It means, this is the best part I liked about it. Devoid, hold on, let me find it here. Devoid of all or at least all, at, devoid of all or at least all grosser matter. In other words, it does not have physicalness to it. Okay, so it's devoid of physical 
Yes. And then wind and then spirit. But you know what? Again, it's like the imagery that God uses for us is he takes things which we understand. Do we understand wind? We do. understand. Wind is no problem to understand. But would you otherwise under, not understand the word spirit if it weren't equated to the idea of wind? Probably not really. Not as well as we do. The idea of wind being that which is invisible. And yet, what do you know about wind? What are some? What would be some of your things that you could describe wind? <laughs> it can be destructive. It can be very powerful, right? It can also be the opposite, which is very gentle and refreshing and and uh, energizing to you as a uh, you know in, in your flesh, obviously. So the wind can come and go. You don't know sometimes when the wind is going to pick up, and you don't know when when it's going to suddenly stop. Have you ever been flying a kite, and the kite's up there doing its thing, and all of a sudden the wind stops, and here comes the kite straight down. That's what. That's how it's the picture, the imagery of it is given to us through wind. This is what a spirit is. It is it is the invisible principalities of air right? So spirit, wind, devoid of physical matter. So this to me is a really important starting place. From here now, we go in to start looking at some of our, um, w- our other word study, which is the word angel itself, which uh, Kay had us look up, and then looking at cross-references then to enhance that. So let's do the word study first. This one was ministering servants or ministering spirits, so we did that one. Now let's do the word angel, which you all did in your work. And tell me how you define that. That's correct. It's, uh, let me see if I can find my, oops. Oh, here it is, number 32. A-G-G-E-L-O-S. That's the New Testament, correct? Then the, is that correct or is that when the... No, that's, that's, Greek. Greek. That's, Greek. Yeah. that's the Greek. Okay, and then the other one, which is Malak, and that one is what? M-A-L-A-K. That's the Old Testament. And what was the number on that one? Oh, does somebody... 4397. Okay, so those were the two words, and we were to look them up in both old and new and see the, the two ver- various ways of it. So in the, in the Greek, it says it's angelos. In the old, it's malak. And how is it defined to us? Messenger. Okay, messenger, ambassador, same kind of idea. Any other defined? One who is sent. One who is sent. Okay. Say it again. Priest is the word for angel. Oh, I get it. Okay. All right. Now, this is where one of the... Did you guys notice when you were looking at some of your cross-references, one of them was in Revelation, and it made a mention about the angel of the various churches in, written in the... Did you get a little bit confused on that? Anybody? 
I mean, for most of us, we did that in our Revelation study, so we've already clarified that. But what you see there is in, in the use of it there in that Revelation 1 account that she gave us, and actually it's all the way through 3, chapter 3 of Revelation, is there are various letters that are written, and, they're, and the letters are written to who? The angel of the churches, right? The various churches to the letter to the angel of the church of Ephesus, to the church of uh, Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Philadelphia. Each of them were written as a letter to the angel of the church. Now, tell me, just in common sense, just using common reasoning, would that be a letter written to a spirit realm or to a physical realm? The physical realm. So in the case of that particular translation of angel, it looks to me like what they should have done instead was use the word priest or bishop or pastor or leader or elder or... Or perhaps just a messenger. Maybe a messenger, but probably, if you think of it in the context of how these were written, they were probably written to a leader of that church who would then be the messenger through which they would then give this to the congregation, correct? So the idea is there that probably in the English, it was a bad translation use. They should not have probably used the word angel there. They should have probably translated it to one of these other terms or um, just used the word messenger, you know, that would have even been better. Because in English, we get mystical sometimes, don't we? All of a sudden we go, oh, the churches have angels. Well, yes, they do. But a letter would not be written to one of them. God would have simply spoke to them, correct? And then and they would have conveyed it to someone who would have then been the messenger to the church. So, right. That's right. Now, not likely. Doesn't make sense at all. Doesn't make sense at all. Exactly. So in this case, the very first part of this definition, which is just simply that they are a messenger, means that it's open for interpretation according to context, correct? So if that word is used in various places, you need to discern, is this speaking about an angelic being, a spirit, or is it speaking of a human messenger? Okay, but now we can take it to the next level. The, the definition goes on beyond there, beyond the idea of just a messenger. Then there's another definition which is going to be very specific to our subject matter. How else are they given to us by def- definition underneath that, those two references you looked up? Is there any other, def- is there any other definition besides messenger of an angel? Okay, so again, that's a messenger. Yes? Okay, so they are, so they are a host of heavenly bodies. Is that what you're saying? Host, host of heaven. Okay. A host of heavenly beings. 
Okay, that's good. I, we're, getting, we're doing really well now. So now, now what you can do for sure is if you looked at that definition, a host of heavenly beings, when you looked at that one reference to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write and tell them this, it wouldn't be written to someone in heaven, correct? That wouldn't even make sense. So now what you know is when you come to a definition like that, you have to decide, is it, is it number one or is it number two definition that I need to apply to that particular reference? So in our reference here, however, we actually have already got some very def definitive uh, understandings. The, these are the ones that are subject to the Son. They worship. They were made by God. Um, they are ministering spirits, which by definition means they're devoid of physical matter. So now where are we in our definition? We're down here to the host of heavenly beings, right? And in, go ahead, Craig. Okay, that's a good, I kind of like that. Okay. Instruments of God, I'm going to put it, make it more general, God's work. Because it can be almost any kind of work. It can be either judgment, or it can be for salvation, or it can be to, to take a message, or it can be to provide help, right? There's sometimes they are exactly this, ministering spirits. There's one place in particular where these ministering spirits even attended Jesus. Do you remember when that was? That's right. In Luke chapter 2, I think it was, where, or, yeah. So when Jesus, when Jesus had been tempted by Satan, then the, the ministering spirits came and tended to him, Okay. Um, I have here an order of created beings belonging to heaven. Okay, which would go along the idea of the host of heavenly beings? Well, that's the next subject, which is all over here. But hang on tight. <laughs> because, but when they, here, here's the question, here's the question though. When they were created in their original state, in their designed, created purpose, they were created to be where? In the heavenlies before God the Father. That was what their design purpose was. So they are spirits. They, um, an order of created beings. Order of created beings belonging to heaven. Okay, so. Um, in Revelation chapter. Yes, I know. And in in English, that's not you know. Yeah, in our in our English translation, though, for us today in the common. English understanding. An angel is an angelic being. And so most people then would say the letter was written to the angel, the angelic being of a certain church. And the interpretation of that would be wrong because why? Would a letter be written to an angelic being? An, an angel gave it to John and told John to give it back to an angel, right, to then do what with it? If it's in the heavenly realm, and why would you write a letter to an angelic being? Right? 
That wasn't, that doesn't even make sense. So the interpretation. So my point was in that one context, they used the word angel and it, a, a better word probably could have been used. If nothing else, simply the word messenger could have been used in that passage and it would have been a better translation. Messenger, that would be better, yes. And the, uh, the concept of the understanding that the word messenger, but, the, but you know, the, the, uh, the bishops of the churches or the leaders, the pastors, people like Paul, Peter, James, they all would have been called angels of the churches in their understanding. But in English today, that would be a, a conflict for us to resolve. We would have to have better understanding of what they mean by that. It simply means messenger. Okay, in that particular reference. Okay, so now we've got some definitions down. We now know that angels are spirit, devoid of physical matter. They are the, a host of heavenly beings. They were an order that, was cr that are created beings belonging to heaven. That is where their, their natural abode was to be, correct? Now what we do is we go in and look at all these cross-references and continue to develop what we know about angels that helps us to be better informed about them. Let's go start with Job. You started with that one in Job 28. Now these are going to be, if you want to look at your consolidated list, it should be on page 33 of your homework. Question number four. Once you did all those cross-references, she said, make yourself a consolidated list. And I don't know if you did that or not. I did. It's right here. <laughs> it's on my homework. <laughs> That's consolidated. No, you're right. It's, it's expounded upon. <laughs> well, it's pretty concise. <laughs> okay, so tell me about their creation according to Job. What do we know about them? Job 38. She actually get. I, I think it would have been better if you had gone one through eight. Somebody open your Bible. Let's just read that one particular one because I really like it. And I, I think if you go all the way back to verse 1 and read 1 through 8, you get a better, uh, fuller picture than just that. I can't remember which verse she gave us there, but it was too short. Job 38, 1 to 8. Okay, James, you go ahead. Yes, please. Nice and loud. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? And I'll gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Okay, so by backing up, you get the full picture of the fact that God is basically challenging Job concerning um his position before God, right? That basically, Job, you are man. I am God the creator. You are the created being. And where were you, by the way, when I did all this creating? Where was he? He was non-existent. He did not even, he had not even come into the, to the glimmer of his father's eye yet. So what we know then is what God is trying to direct our attention to in this passage is that he is the one that was the creator, right? He laid the foundation and he set its boundaries or he laid its foundation. And then he gives us a little bit of insight about the angels. What does he tell us about the angels in that record? Where were the angels when all this took place? They 
They were watching him. And what was their response? They shouted for joy. Now, so what does that tell us about angels? They love what God does. They think he's really cool. He's a great artist. Yes. So it shows us that they have emotion, if nothing else, right? That they're emotional beings and they had this great joy and delight, correct? Where were they when the creation occurred? In heaven's watching. So what does that tell you about, uh, about them when they were created? Sometime before the, the creation of the earth, the angels were created. Now, there's a lot of supposition that floats around as to when that took place, and we don't know. The scripture does not tell us. But, but later on, we're going to see another verse that's going to say that God created them as well, correct? So what does that tell us about the possibilities of when they were created? Sometime in day one, two, three, four, or five, or whatever, right, before the earth itself was formed and these various things took place because they watched God form the earth and set it upon its axis, basically, in the deeps. So this tells us a lot. So they're cre- as far as their creation, um, boy, these markers are hard. Uh, they were created before the earth. Before the earth and consequently before man, right? Um, probably not because in the beginning it says, in the beginning it was darkness and void was over the surface of the water and the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, had to hover over it and infuse it then with these things. So it had to be beyond day one. This is where your logic starts to come in. You have to kind of reason things through and say, well, logically, at what point could they have been created? Um, There's a place where he separates the, the... the deep from the heavenlies, right? And then there's this, this void in between, which we call the atmosphere. And then he begins to place things in the heavenlies, correct? The sun, the moon, the stars. And so what would you think about that time frame? If God is beginning to fill the heavenlies at this point, he's separated the waters of the deep from below from the waters above, and he begins to place the sun, the moon, the starry, and those things which are heavenly bodies in their heavenly places. So he may have created the angels at that point, and he does not give us insight on that. He simply tells us later on that he created all things that are even in existence, right? So all we can do is begin to reason that through. And if when we do a Genesis 1 study, we kind of walk through that a little bit more in detail. But, but those were focused on creation and things of matter. That's true. So you're right. You, that's a good point, Carol. Those are things of matter, so maybe it was before. However, th- he does open the book saying it was devoid right. of anything. There was no, there was no living quality about anything God took nothing and made something out of it so from nothing then somewhere along that way once he created the the uh this the forum in which the life could be placed then it had to come the angels somewhere in there after that it would be my guess but it could be argued and we don't know but what we do know is this they were present when the earth was created and they witnessed it 
And therefore, we can draw the conclusion they also were there before us. What does that do for angels in comparison to man? Are we distinct? Yeah, two distinctive things. They are physical. I mean, they are non-physical, devoid of physical matter. We are a body of matter. They were designed to live and dwell in where? The heavenlies. And we were designed to live and dwell where? Upon the earth. Two distinct created beings. Okay. All right. So before the earth, and they shouted for joy. At creation. I just think that's really kind of cool. It just shows that they had this. Okay, so this is Job 38. That they have this emotion and this excitement, this delight in the things that God was doing, and they witnessed it. I think that's just an amazing thing. Okay, so let's go on now. Let's finish with some further descriptions. We looked, go first to Colossians 1.16. Um, okay, that, it could be when you get into that much detail. We're, that's a whole nother subject. The sons of God quality shows that they are sons of God. And yes, you can put that on your list. I just don't want to develop it because it's too much to cover in one lesson. The, the subject of being sons of God, if we were doing Genesis chapter 6, we would stop and do that. They're created, they are their creation, they are sons of God. And they are. And what we need to know is what does that mean? See, and that's where we haven't developed that. Or, or I'm going to put on here called. Called sons of God. Okay? Does that help you? And you know, it's really interesting because um one of the things that I remember early on was being taught that in the Old Testament that man was never called sons of God. We only get that in the New Testament. But I found that that's not true. There are, there are references to where we are called. There are just additional adjectives like we are the sons of the living God, for instance, are, are stated. Especially the Hebrew nation, they're referred to as his children and his sons. So um, that one is definitely out when it comes to that. So the, the term sons of God seems to be um, suggesting that, that it's because he created us that makes us a son. And interesting that he calls them sons of God, but it's little son as opposed to Jesus who is the son, right? I mean, there's a very clear distinction there. And later on, we are also called sons of God, but it's distinct and different from that of the angels. That's right. That's true. Israel as a nation was called that. That's correct. That's correct. Okay. So, and, and unfortunately, Carol, we don't have time to develop that particular lesson. That's a whole other lesson in and of itself. And, and you could spend a lot of time because you would need to do a research throughout the, all of Scripture about sons of God and what the implication is to that, that term as relates to human beings and as relates to angels, how it differs. And then, and then you'd want your third column to be about Jesus being the Son of God, which is also very distinctive and different. Right? And 
on that verse, it just says they're angels of God, not sons of God. Oh, okay. All right. So each translation is different again. And that would be another point if you did a, a study on that. You would have to develop that and go in and say, okay, what do the different translations mean? You need to do word studies on that particular did you do word study on it by chance? Okay. So those are the things that would have to happen in order to develop that more carefully. But that's in and of itself a whole lesson of study. Okay. Yes. I know they are, absolutely. And before Job, when he makes an appearance in Job chapter two, uh, 1 and 2, the angels appear before him. And in that case, very interesting, um, the sons of God come before the presence of God to petition to do what? And who's the leader of the pack in that Job 2 passage? Satan. And this, those sons of God then would be the fallen angels. And they appear before God as sons of God and petition God that they can bring harm upon Job. So again, that's why I'm saying it's a whole lesson. I don't want to go there. Okay, enough. We're going to move on <laughs> because it's another subject matter. So let's not get diverted. What we want to do first today is just lay down an understanding in general about angels. Who are they? How are they described? What is their purpose and their function? And then we're going to move off into a little bit on fallen angels, but we're not going to do it a great deal of depth except to identify that there are some who are fallen, okay? All right, so let's look at their description again back in Colossians. And it actually helps because our word studies support some of the insights there. What do we see in Colossians? Okay, so we're going to put Colossians 1.16 up here that they were made by God. It's a reinforcement of that particular point, correct? And how else are they described in 1.16? Invisible and invisible. So these are the invisible. And how is that supported by our word study? Yeah. They have no matter, devoid of physical matter. They are spirit. Okay, so the invisible, um, I'm just going to put principalities because that's a word that you see a lot. Okay, let's talk, let's, that's, that would be in their purpose, under the purpose subject. So what do you see there? What was your reference you had in mind? Okay, okay, their purpose, they appear in human form to do God's bidding, right? And that's going to be just a general, I won't even have a reference with it because it's going to cover like 15,000 different possibilities. All the times where you see, uh, I see. Right. There's tons and tons and tons of appearances of angels. And when they appear on the whole, they appear generally in some kind of a human form. Now, why do you think that is? Why do they kick on human form as opposed to appearing in their natural uh, appearance? 
I know. So, sorry. Hang on. Yes. So you're not scared of death. Yes. <laughs> yes. So that you're not absolutely terrified out of your mind because the appearance of them can be absolutely terrifying. From the description that we looked at when we did our Ezekiel study, for instance, that is one terrifying a, you know, creature, yes, angel. And so they take on the, the appearance of human form, and even in human form when they appeared, often like the angels who appeared to the, the shepherds in the field, he, they immediately said, you know, basically, peace be unto you, and do not fear, for I bring you good news, right? And so he, he calms, he tries to attempt to calm them. We saw it in Revelation when the angel is speaking with John through a vision, and the angel comes to give him instruction, and John is terrified, pallor, his blood just drains from his face, and he falls on the ground in just frozen state. So there is a sense of fear in the presence of them. So they take on human form ob for obvious reasons so that we're not so terrified when they came as God's messenger. Mm -hmm. Yes, but they can take on... Well, I would say there's got to be some kind of form. <clears throat> you know, the, the difference is, is you're talking a different plane. They're on a spiritual plane with God. And so before God is spirit beings, God sees them. And they see one another, obviously. Absolutely. We don't see them because it's a spiritual thing which is taking place beyond this realm of, of our earth. Yes. Yes, that's what you were going to say, too. Good job. <laughs> you and I are always one. <laughs> right. He, they take on a human appearance so that they, there is a visibility about them so that there can be this encounter. Even when Jesus himself appears in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord, which we're going to look at in a minute, same thing. He takes on some form of human shape so that the the spirit realm can be seen in the physical realm yes right right it can be Oh, yeah, we're not, and we're not. <laughs> well, okay, now this is, a, this is actually a very good, but it's a good point to make at this point. When they take on the form of a human being, does that mean they literally become a human being? No, absolutely not. Why? They are created in a totally different um realm. They are created spirit. We are created physical. They were created in the heavenlies and to abide and abode in the heavenlies. We are created for the earth. They were created on a day separate from us 
and distinct from us, right? Now, what's very interesting is when you do your Genesis account, you see also as God is creating the, the, the qualities of the earth, and he talks about the trees and the grasses, and it talks about the animals, and talks about the animals of the sea and, and the animals of the earth. And then the last one is, is man. Is man the same as the animals? No. no. Are they a distinctive classification of creation? Yes, are, are the animals separate, distinct classification from the heavenly bodies that were created? Yes, each has its own. There's a passage in Corinthians 15 where it talks about the resurrection of the body. It actually addresses this subject of all these different kinds of uh, seed from which we come from, basically. Our creation is distinct. Each of us have our own uh, specific place. Now, you know, I might as well go there. We're, we're dancing all around it. Okay, let's go, when you look at, because Kay is going to make a mention of this, and I hate it when I have to disagree with her, because I love Kay, but she and I differ on our interpretation of Genesis chapter 6. Um, she is going to say on the video today about the Genesis 6, where the sons of God come and marry the daughters of men. Her mention of this is that, that angels came and procreated with human women. This is, and this is a very popular ideology that's out there, and there's a lot of people who follow this. But I am absolutely 100% sure that it is a wrong interpretation. I can give you a, a, like probably a list of 10 different apologetic reasons why not. Today I'm going to give you one. And it has to do with this creation order of uh, what's called the men or kind. In Genesis 1, you see that when God creates the various things, he says, and let them reproduce after their kind. Specifically, he says, the fish of the sea after their kind, the beasts of the land after their kind, right? And then later he says to Adam and Eve, now you reproduce after your kind and, and fill the earth, correct? Okay, so in the creation account, God created all things according to their kind. That word is uh, uh, mean, M-I-Y-N. In science, they have actually developed a science uh, study field called barominology. Barimens are, are those things which are after their kind, and it's one of the new ways that they've actually classified, for instance, the animals on the earth. Um, and so they've said that there's a cat kind, there's a dog kind, there's a bird kind, there's, you know, this kind of stuff. And that within a kind, animals can reproduce and, become, and get various um, shades or, or species, right, of them. Humans, we have various uh, what you, changes within our kind in that we have Hispanic, we have black, we have Asian, we have uh, Caucasian, right? But yet we're all one kind. M-I-N or M-E-E-N is how it's pronounced, M-I-Y-N. It's number 4327. If you go to Genesis chapter 1, look up the word kind and do your word study on it, you're going to find all this information for yourself. So in other words, they have the same ancestral gene pool is how it's defined, okay? That's one, wherever. There's a lot, probably like verse 20 something. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be in there. You just have to go look at it. I didn't write that part down. I'm sorry. Um, the word used in science is the word or the study of Barrowman. God set boundaries for procreation to being after their own kind. 
and each man, each baraman, is restricted to reproduce within its own classification. Okay? So the fish cannot reproduce with the cows. The cows can't reproduce with the birds. People cannot reproduce with an animal. Why? Because he set, bar- he sp- he set boundaries based on kind. And when he made this pronouncement to, by his command, he said, let them reproduce after their kind. That was his designed order. What do you think that does for us and angels? Can't reproduce from one thing to another. Number one, we have DNA and physical body. What do they have? Spirit. Spirit, Do they have DNA that they could even reproduce to begin with? No. No. Okay. A question back here. Right. Mm-hmm. That's right. They will be neither married nor given in marriage. And you know what, what, you, what people may not understand about that passage is when he makes that statement, you are neither married nor given in marriage, is not talking about the institution of the, of the idea of marriage, but what was the purpose for marriage? Procreation. procreation. And he's saying there is going to be no procreation and therefore no need for marriage. And the angels never had need for procreation because I created all of them in an instant. Although he didn't say that, but that is what the implication is, right? <laughs> the implication is he, cre- he created all that he wanted of them. They don't marry and they, don't, they, don't, they are not given in marriage. They do not procreate. They, they are already a full class of, of angels. The beings are all there. So, so here's my point. No cross procreation is permitted in the natural order of things. Since we see this just by our own common sense, we can look around the world around us and we know this is, this makes sense. On occasion, man has attempted to do so with the result of defective, inferior, and sterile offspring. You can do it on occasion with things which are close enough to one another, but generally the, the outcome is always a defective class, right? Well, in the Genesis record, it talks about angels then, if, the, if their interpretation is, is what they want to hold to. They're saying angels who are spirits who have no physicalness to them. They procreated with women who have a physical thing to them. Um, and, and the result was that they had mighty men of God who were renowned, which implies that where are they in relationship to men? Better than, that they've actually excelled beyond man, that they've become an improved state of man. But is that the reality that we see in nature? That if, if two things of different bearments come together, what is produced? Either a sterile or even a dead baby, often. The babies won't even survive out of the womb. They come to the earth and they're dead at, on arrival, Yes. Yes. That's right. There's a good example of that. Exactly. So therefore, this becomes a doctrinal point for interpretation purposes. You cannot cross procreate. God has set boundaries. We're each of our own bearer men. Angels are not of our bearer men. Period. 
okay? God, and not only that, they're not even of our world. They're of the heavenlies, we're of the earth. God placed barriers in place that forbids or prohibits cross-procreation of kinds, and as a result, it forbids an interpretation in Genesis 6 that angels became human and, and procreated with women, producing a superior race of giants. They are spirits, they have no DNA, they cannot reproduce, and they did not. The child, and if they did, the child would be defective, not a giant, renowned among men. Angels who occasionally take on the form of man do not become human with DNA as a human. They don't. They simply have an appearance at the moment, and it's temporal, okay? Then it, now, this is only one point. I can take you back to Genesis, and just by our natural uh, inductive processes, I would be able to prove to you that this is not speaking of angels, this is only speaking of men, which is why God then judged man. He didn't judge the angels, he judged man, right? Okay, I have many more points, I don't have time to do that. I must, however, address one more thing, and that is the idea of demon possession, because, well, what if an angel just possessed a human being and then produced these giants? Well, my question would be this, now think, reason this through. If a sexual encounter between a demon-possessed man and a woman, a human woman, just a normal, not demon-possessed, would not produce anything superior to or different from a natural human being. It would be a human with a human, one human, possessed, but still just human. So their child would simply be human, a child, of no superior qualities or, or differentiation, right? Even if a demon-possessed man produced a child in a, a womb, the child would still just be a child. Nothing more, nothing less. Okay, so I just wanted to bring that point up because when we go in and we look at the, the subject of the sons of God procreating with the daughters of men in that particular record, all it's speaking of is those who loved God and those who did not. And what happened is the believers began to procreate or, or to take into their covenant relationships people who were not followers of Yahweh. They disobeyed God's law in Deuteronomy 7 that says do not do that, right? There, or, well, the law that would come. That's why the law came later, by the way. The law came later where he told them before they entered the land, do not intermarry with those who don't believe. Because if you do, what's going to happen? They will draw you away from me, and I will have to destroy you off the land. What had he done in Genesis 6 when these two groups procreated? What was the end result with men? They became so evil and, and it was so profoundly infused into all of humanity, the loss of worship of God had gotten so far that God then did what? Destroyed them off the earth. Yeah. And in, in, the, in the Deuteronomy account, he says, I will destroy you off the land, which, by the way, he did again. Because, again, they did the same thing. They procreated sons of God with daughters of men. And it took them into the worship of other idols and of not following Yahweh. Okay, so that was a big detour. But now we've got that set. But, you know, actually we've learned another point, though, and that is angels are their own classification of barrenmen, or of men is the word, kind, and they cannot cross-procreate with human beings. That is my understanding, and that's how I have taught it for years, and I still stand on it to this day. There are those who say otherwise, including Kay, who fall to a different uh, form of teaching, but I always am amazed at this because it violates the doctrine that was established in Genesis chapter 1, that Barramans cannot cross-procreate. 
and that God set boundaries to forbid it. So I, I, I'm at a loss to explain it. I would love to sit down and talk to her on that one. I wrote her a letter once and never made it to her desk. I don't think she ever got it. Somebody wrote back to me saying, well, we'll just agree to disagree. But I never heard from Kay herself. I don't know that she ever saw my letter. Anyway, so with that said, I still love Kay, and I still re respect her immensely. And her, you know, we can all have an error in one area or another without destroying the, the totality of our credibility in our ministry, correct? And if I'm ever wrong on something, just you know, take it with a grain of salt and say, well, that's Katie's thought and just move on. I try very hard, though, to base my uh, explanations on scripture. And if I've done that, that's the best I can do. And then I am, I am clear before God that my conscience is clear that I've done the very best that I can to handle the word of God accurately. Okay, so, all right, now let's move on. They can take on the form of other, of other things, right? They can even take on the form of a donkey, but I bet they don't produce more donkeys, <laughs> right? When they're on that form, they don't have more ba donkey babies. So just so you know that, <laughs> they just are that form temporarily until they've accomplished the mission that they have come for, whatever that was. Like with ba Balaam or Balak, the talking... Balaam, the talking donkey that rebuked him. Okay. All right, so we saw in Colossians 1 that they are invisible spirits. We also see in Colossians 1 that they, that they live in the heavenly places, or they dwell in heavenly places. That's also in Colossians 1.16. All right, what else do we see? We, we have Luke, we have Mark, we have Psalms. I mean, we got lots of verses Throw out some things. What did, what did you learn in Luke? I liked this one. It was a little, a little more. They cannot, die. they cannot die. Why not? What if you die? What, what is it about you that's dying? The flesh. Do they have flesh? No. So they cannot die. Another point to my whole story that we just discussed. Okay? Description, they cannot die. That's right. They cannot die because they are without flesh in this context. That's all we need to know. It says no decay. It talks about no decay, right, in that particular verse. That's in Luke 20:36. All right? They do not die because they don't have flesh, and therefore they, there is no decay of them. They are spirit, and spirit is eternal. In Mark 12, someone brought this one up earlier. Their description, what else? They do not marry or are not given in marriage. And to take that to a conclusion... No procreation is what the implication is there. Now, in this, in this particular account, it was speaking about this woman and her, who would she be married to? But we can also take this to the next level. The whole purpose for marriage is procreation in God's economy. That's how, what God designed it for. So in that, we can, we can draw a conclusion there's no procreation. Okay, Mar this is uh, Mark 12. And it's obvious why. There's no procreation. They're not physical. They're spirit. Okay? What else do we know about them? 
They perform God's word. Okay, so their purpose is they perform. And where are you at? What? Okay. Psalm uh, 103, thank you. 19 to 21? Okay, got it. They perform God's word. I love that one. They are mighty. <laughs> but it's very interesting to me. They are wrestling around. <laughs> Well, and in that, yeah, thank you. I was going to say that that one is probably another uh, the presence of the Lord because when, when he did, he said, bless me, and he did. He blessed him. So only who could give a blessing? Only God. So he was wrestling with the Lord, the angel of the Lord. That's cool, huh? I know it is. It's really cool, though. Oh, it's just a... It's a lovely story of just of his determination to be blessed by God um, and refusing to go forward anywhere until God blessed him because he wanted that assurance, right? Okay, in Hebrews um, 13.2, somebody drop, jump, jump forward into Hebrews 13.2 and tell me what you see there because that's another Hebrews reference that gives us another insight about them. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they can be among us without us even realizing it. So they come in human form, and, and they may or may not even let you know. Sometimes they will, but, but often they won't, apparently. They're there for a, a design purpose to either guide you or push you in a certain direction maybe, or, you know, have you ever had encounters like that in your life where you've wondered about that person, you never see them again, but they have really made a profound impact on, by something they've said to you, or information they've given to you, or a path they kind of put your feet upon, and you don't, you never hear from them again or see them again, and yet you just know in hindsight that was something from the Lord. Now, you don't know if it was an angel or not, again, they can be among you unawares. You don't know if you've entertained an angel or not. God tells us. That's really cool. So they can take on human form. Um, probably not. <laughs> but you could be married to one. So. <laughs> oh, that's true. Darn, I guess that disqualifies me, huh? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, don't tell my husband that I was going to give him that little bit of it. <laughs> okay, now, so one thing, though, we see in Psalm 103, also that 19 to 21, we, we see a contrast between angel groups. Actually, it shows us a breakdown, right? What does it say in there? Basically, some are good, right? Right? 
Okay, some are good doing his will. Doing God's will. Okay, and then there's a contrast, however, right? But what about others? Oh, did I? Oh, maybe I just was making the assumption when we got to the next... Okay, then that's not it. Say it again. Yeah, that's not that's not taking me where I was thinking. I must have. Ju- I think what I did on my chart was I just made a conclusion that there are some who are good doing his will, but then there are others, and that's what we want to move to next is to look a little bit more about the others. We see their description. They they worship God and His Son. They are subject to the Son. They're invisible principalities. They dwell in the heavenlies. They cannot die. They're without flesh. They do not marry or give in a marriage. They do not procreate. They are mighty in strength. They can be among us without us realizing it. And some are good doing God's will. Okay? Yes. Right. The, and then the opposite always comes to my mind, yes. <laughs> Okay, so let's put that up here on their purpose, uh, that they are servants according to Revelation. They are servants of God. And that was Revelation what? Okay, Revelation 22. All right, now... um, Yeah, we need to, we've got to get moving on. So they are sent to God, to perform God's word, Psalm 78. They ministered to Jesus after his temptation in Matthew 4.11. They will come with Jesus when he returns. Did you guys see that? In Matthew 25.31. And consequently in Matthew 13, it says the son of man will send forth his angels when he returns. He's going to send forth his angels. They will gather and throw all stumbling blocks into the fire furnace. So when he, when they come in on the stage, they basically remove all evildoers from this earth. They get thrown into that, uh, great wine press of God's wrath and they are killed, destroyed. And what we end up with at the end is God's kingdom established with only those who love the Lord in, in the, initially, right? In that, that beginning of that thousand years. We also see it just in the whole on Re, in Revelation, but you can look in Revelation 8 specifically. You're going to see how involved the angels are in God's end time events. You know, they're pouring out bowls. They're, they're standing before his altar. You see him in the opening of that book worshiping him and saying, holy, holy, holy. Um, uh, all the way through the book, there are angels varying, doing various uh, qualities and aspects of the unfolding uh, work of God for that in time. So that, that makes them servants. We'll just put, um, are heavily involved in end time events. 
Uh, I'll put Revelation 8, but then we'll put the Matthew 13, 41, and 42. Okay, now let's move over and look at the fallen angels then. When and where did this occur? Again, back to Revelation, right? Okay, so what do we see there? What happened according to Revelation 12, 3, and 4? It says that what? One-third of the angels, right, are what? Swept away by tail of, I'm going to put Satan to clarify, right? And that's in Revelation uh, 12, 3, and 4. Now, interpretation, let's go down to uh, Jude 6 to get a little bit better understanding. What does that mean that the, the tail of Satan swept them away, right? What does it say in Jude 6 about that? Okay, did not keep their proper abode. They abandoned it. They abandoned it, it being what? What is their proper abode? Heaven. They abandoned heaven. Okay, and this is what we're going to look at in Jude's. Six. So if you didn't understand what it meant by that he swept away a third of the stars, the interpretation that would complement this would be found in Jude 6 where it explains that they left their abode. Because in Revelation 12, it looks like Satan is forcing them or, or Satan uh, defeated them in some way, right, by sweeping him away. But if you understand the original language better, that idea of sweeping away, uh, it, it's a, it is a leading... But who? But if there's a leader, what happens? Someone does what? Follows. So actually, in the Greek, I think, or in the yeah, it'd be the Greek. It actually shows that the idea that it was not a, a submission of them under an authority of Satan who captured them and took them, but rather that he was their leader and they followed him. Okay, and then Jude really clarifies that by saying they did not keep their proper abode. They abandoned heaven, basically. So it was their choice to follow Satan, right? And how do we know that? What's the result in Jude 6? What is God going to do with them? He's going to judge them. So does God judge a person for being a victim? No. It would violate all understanding of who our God is. He only judges people for doing what? Or entities, in this case. For sin, right? So, and sin is a willful state on, on your individual part. So the angels willfully sinned against God. They left their abode, and now God holds them under, uh, what does it say, under darkness for the day of judgment, right? They're being held for judgment. Now, being held for judgment does, does not necessarily mean they're captive in a cave or they're captive in a pit or anything like that. It could be that they are simply being, uh, they're being reserved, held over until the time of judgment. Okay, they hmm? Yes, so they have free will. So here what we see, free will. We could put that on over here, their description, free will. And they can sin. 
So we'll put that for Jude 6, right? They have free will and they can sin. Well, again, it's another study, but the implication here is that those who were going to did. And so those who are left won't. Unless there's things going on that God is not reporting to us and we have no knowledge of. And that is a possibility. I won't even go there. <laughs> I can only say what we know. Right. That's why I've started it with free will. They have free will. They have a, in other words, they have a volition just like we do, which is very interesting, don't you think? They're spirits. They are called sons of God just like we're called sons of God. They have a free will just like we have a free will. They get to choose to follow or they get to choose not to follow. In this case, we see the record in Revelation uh, 12. The implication there is that those who were going to did, it's a done deal, that a third of them were taken down with Satan. They followed him. They left their own proper abode, the place which God had designed them to be in. They abandoned. That was their free will choice. Yeah, that there are classification. Yeah, that there are there are hierarchies or distinctive um, orders even to there's there's Satan and then there are others underneath. Same thing with the angels. There are classifications of angels. There are angels. We talk about angels of light, the sons of God. But then some of them are called cherubim. Some are called seraphim. Some are called the four living creatures. Um, I mean, there's there's different titles that are given to each of them also so it does seem like they each kind of have their own classification so to speak okay roles maybe yeah well, what it's talking about that he's thrown, he's cast out of his position. So now he's free to roam. The, 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 uh, what is the one that says he roams to and fro throughout the earth, seeking whom he may devour? That is what he is about doing right now. Satan, he, he's, first of all, let's put on there that he stands before God. Now, what does that tell you about his ability then to have access to God? He can. He still has the, the free realm to enter before the presence of God. Now, when we did our revelation study, we know that at a certain point, that is forbidden then. And we see that in the next portion of what we see in Revelation 12, where we see um, he wages war with Michael and his angels, and he's cast down to the earth. And that shows that finality moment where he is no longer allowed in the presence of God. Now the bowls of God will be poured out, the wrath of God is pulled out, and judgment has come upon them. But for right now, they still have free realm. No, that's right. No, he doesn't. He, he can enter, though, yet into that, that abode of God, into that presence, 
and make accusation. And we see even Jesus, when he spoke to Peter, he said, uh, Satan has asked it or requested permission to sift you like wheat, right? So again, we see there that there was Satan had asked in the days of Peter, way after the times of Job, he also had been in the presence of God saying, I want to sift Peter. And Jesus said he has been given permission. Yes, he sits on his throne. That's right. I'm sorry. I'm I'm not following the question. Oh, okay. Okay. I'm sorry. I lost this. I lost the, the train of thought in there somewhere. Okay, so what we know is a third of the angels have been swept away, meaning they did not keep their proper bone. They abandoned heaven. Uh, they are being held for judgment by God, meaning until an appointed time, right, when God will judge them. Angels have sinned. Now, this we see this in 2 Peter 2.4. Look at 2 Peter 2.4. That's the one where it talks about them being reserved. Angels who sinned are being held for judgment. Okay, that's in 2 Peter 2.4. All right. Yes, so they can be disobedient, which is the whole point. We do see that they, that they are, is a group of fallen angels who, who, by the way, then can fool us. If they can come in the form and be unawares amongst us, why is it then that 1 John chapter 4 says you need to discern the spirits and determine whether they are from God or not? Can you see the warning here? Can you see how many churches developed or, or, or cults developed? Because what they do is they receive like, like um, Joseph Smith did for the Mormons. He received a message from a, quote, angel, an angel of light who was satanic in its fallen nature. He convinced uh, Joseph, that he had a special relationship with God to the point that God would send an angel to, to converse with him. His pride got in the way there somewhere. And instead of remembering what God has already said in his word about do not receive any new message, whether it be from man or an angel, if it's different from the message you've already received, then let that man be accursed. He forgot all that. He should have, but yes, he did not know that. But the word was available to him. He could have had it. So he forgot that or he didn't know it. Either way, what we know is he believed that this angel appearing to him made him something special. And then he got a lot of other people to believe that he was something special. Yeah. So this, this all is to be said at this point. Then what we see about angels is there are those who are fallen and you have to be aware and they have abilities to uh, deceive us if they can. And they attempt to all the time. We also know, however, that God has a, a defined role for those who have retained their, their abode, which God gave them. And they are, God, they are here, sent, according to Hebrews 1.14, to be what for us? Ministering spirits sent to do what? To render service to those who will what? inherit salvation yay they're powerful beings and they and their their face is in the presence of God always they are in the presence of the Lord and they work on behalf of God's bidding and will for us
Okay, so we know a little bit. Now you know you do not die and become an angel because they're a created order of being. <laughs> yeah. 